Good morning. It's good to be with you guys. If you've got a Bible, open up to, we're starting a new book today, the book of Esther. It's right before the Psalms, so if you've got a Bible, open up there. It's not a book you're probably super familiar with, maybe some of you are, but we're going to get familiar with it. Starting today and then for the next 10 or so weeks, we're going to be going through Esther. Um, I'm really excited about this because it's a, it's a curious book. It's the only book in the Bible that does not mention God. Not once. doesn't even really remen- mention anything religious. Um, and it's curious. So put on your, your imagination hat and get ready to engage with God's Word. For some reason, God wants us to know about this story. He wants you to know about this story. Um, so open your Bibles. If you don't have one, um, some, someone can bring you one. Just raise your hand if you need a pen or a Bible. We're going to be looking at the first chapter of Esther today. And we'll be going through the book for the next 10 or so weeks, about a chapter at a time. Just to give you some more sort of... Uh, some sort of introductory information about this book. Uh, it's written or it tells events about 483 years before Jesus ever walked the earth. The Israelites, many of them are still in exile. Um, they're scattered. Some of them have gone back to the promised land, but many of them decided to stay uh, after a decree was issued. They decided to stay in now the Persian Empire. So they're, they're under uh, pagan kings. We're going to read today about King Ahasuerus. Everybody say King Ahasuerus. Okay, yeah, that was decent. Um, I might call him King A. If you know history, he's also known as King Xerxes. So if you've seen the movie 300, remember that guy? That's, that's who this guy is. Um, I don't know how accurate 300 is, but uh, this is accurate. Same guy. Um, And it's likely that uh, the events in this chapter took place right before, actually, King Xerxes invaded Greece, which is the the events of the movie 300. Um, This book, as you'll, you'll notice when we start reading, it's a narrative. And what's really curious about this narrative is that it does not... The author doesn't engage in any moral, um, he, he doesn't cast any judgment. You know, often you'll be reading the Old Testament and it'll say, and God was displeased. We don't get any of that in Esther. The other thing that's curious is that um, it never mentions God's name, which is strange for a book in the Bible, that a book uh, within the library that is the Bible that's about God and it never mentions his name. Um, And then one other thing just to keep in mind as we read, um, there's lots of things in the Bible that God God records for us. He wants us to know about them, but it doesn't mean that he's endorsing that kind of behavior. So as we read this book, there's a lot of scandalous things. There's a lot of bad things, um, even in just in the first chapter alone. And don't think that that means God's endorsing that, but for some reason he wants us to know about it. So without, without um, any further ado, let's read this. Uh, like I said, put on your imagination cap. 
Let's engage with this story that is Esther. This is God's word. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the king Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days, And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the king, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyre, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. In drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. All right, pause for one second. If if you're reading along in the bulletin, uh, we weren't able to fit all the text in there. So you may have to open your Bible and um, look in there. At some point, we're not going to, the bulletin won't have the text. So picking up in verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abiktha, Zathar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shathar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Medea who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of, the king, of king Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, 
King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him. And let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike." This advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Memukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. This is God's word. Let me pray. Uh, Lord, you've put before us today a a curious book. I pray that you would help me to rightly divide it, Lord. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would bring uh, conviction where conviction belongs and encouragement and hope where we need encouragement and hope. I ask for your spirit to push push the truth down into our hearts. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been really excited about a political candidate? Maybe, maybe you haven't. Uh, I actually have not. Uh, but if you have, then you've probably experienced what I'm, I'm about to describe. It goes something like this. You get excited. You, you look at their platform and you say, those are things I can get behind. And you look at their character and you say, they seem to be you know, a good guy or girl. I, I want to get behind this person. And then they get elected. And what happens? They do little, if anything, of what they promised. And when the next voting season comes around, they start to change, maybe. They start to change a little bit. They, they are just looking for votes. And you come to find out the person that you had hoped would bring some change, some, uh, some good things, they just needed your vote. That's, why, that's all they wanted from you is your vote. And every, every cycle... They would change so that they could get reelected again. And slowly, you realize that they don't really care about the things you care about. They never really did. They were concerned with their own power, with keeping and using their own power. As we look at our text today, we see something really similar in King Ahasuerus. We see that those in authority over us aren't are often not working for our good, but they're working for their own good, for their own glory, without any care for the people that are under them. So the question today is, how are we as Christians to live in this world? Live in a world where our leaders will fail us, and they will often not think of us, but think of themselves and their own power and their own glory. 
And that's exactly what we see here in the first chapter of Esther. So let's look. First, we need to understand this story. And as we understand it, I want to encourage you to actually laugh at King Ahasuerus. So let's, uh, if you guys look, I put under everyone's seat um, an imagination cap. So if you can just pick that up, put it on. You're going to need it to really engage with this story. It seems like you guys, do you not see them? They're there. You just got to imagine it. Okay, you got yours on. Thank you. Um, So let's look at this story. So we've got King Ahasuerus. Look at verse 1. He reigns from India to Ethiopia. This is a massive kingdom. At the time, he reigned over about 50 million people, which we don't know that from the text, but from history, which is close to half of the, the people in the world. He's king of basically the world, as it was known. What's the extent of his power? He, is complete, he has complete authority. When he says something, it goes. There's no debating. There's no Congress. There's nothing like that. His word is law. His kingdom, 127 provinces, this is meant to impress us. When you read that, you should think, wow, this guy's got a lot of power. <clears throat> So how does he use his power? Look at uh, verse 4. It says, While he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for 180 days. So he has power, and he really wants us to know about it. He spends six months putting on a display. Maybe it's parades. It doesn't say exactly. He wants us to see how powerful he is. And then finally, the last seven days, which is what the most, most of this passage is about, he throws a feast and a drinking party. So he spent six months showing off, and now he's like, we're going to have a party to celebrate me. We're going to celebrate me. And look at the party. Um, if you're planning a party or a wedding, take notes. Um, see if maybe these are some things you want to incorporate into your party. Look at verse 6. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, couches of gold and silver. Huh? Not bad. Not very comfortable, but fancy. A, A mosaic pavement of all those fancy types of pearls and precious stones. Okay, so literally the floor that they're walking on at this party, is made of precious stones. It's very nice. Drinks were served in golden vessels, so everything is basically made of gold. Um, And all the vessels are unique, vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. So it's it's an open bar, to put it that way. There's no compulsion. You don't have to drink, but you can also drink as much as you want. An open bar, like every good party. So the queen is also throwing an adjacent party, you see there in verse 9, which would have been normal for the queen to throw uh, a party sort of separately with the women. But then what happens? In verse 10, the king's been drinking for seven days, so certainly he's tipsy or drunk. Um, He's intoxicated. He's shown off his power for six months, and now he wants to show off his wife. He's got a trophy wife. 
and he says, send, he sends his servants, bring my wife, bring my, not really wife, it's not that kind of commitment, it's just a queen, um, more of a trophy than it is a personal relationship. So he says in verse 11, bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Uh, Some people, some early Jewish commentators took this to mean he was asking her to come in only her crown. Um, I'm not sure, but either way, the point was clear. He's trying to objectify her. Um, It's not a, a nice invitation. Um, and what does Vashti do? What does the queen say? She says, no. So he's spent all this time trying to make sure everyone thinks he's larger than life. And his queen says no in front of all of his friends. He's humiliated. And he's angry. Look at verse 12. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. You can imagine this. Humiliated in front of everyone, he gets angry. So he goes, this is kind of the strange part. His wife tells him no. You think he might go talk to her, but instead he calls a team of lawyers and he says, hey guys, we need to do, what are we going to do about this? This is, all, this is all of our problem. And one of his lawyers, you see there, Memekin, he speaks up. Verses 16 through 20. This is Memekin's advice to the king. Basically what he says, I'll put it in my own words, in verse 16, he says, look, this is worse than you realize. This is is big, this is bad. This is bad for everybody. All the women in Persia are going to start disrespecting their husbands. And the noble women who are at the party, they're really not going to listen to their husbands. So he comes up with a solution. He says, let's make a new law and let's send it as quickly as possible to every corner of our empire. All women must give honor to their husbands. And they send this order out to every corner of the empire. This is, this is funny. His solution for his, his marital problems is to create a commandment and send it out to the entire nation. And, and here, here's a man working very hard to make sure everyone thinks that he's more than a man. A man who fancies himself a god, but Queen Vashti refuses. And in one moment, with, with one little no, in front of all the people that he desperately wants respect from, he's humiliated. He's shown to be what he is, and that is just a mere man, like us, whose wives will say no to us sometimes. This is ironic. The, the author wants us to see that all, all his order did, that really the, the silliest part about this is he's embarrassed and he makes an order, a decree, and he sends it out in every language. And all he's really doing is publicizing the fact that he and his wife are not on good terms. And now the whole nation knows about it. It's, the irony is, is rich. Have you seen The Wizard of Oz? If you haven't, you need to see it. Young kids, you probably haven't seen it. There's a moment in The Wizard of Oz, if you remember the, the great and powerful Oz, he, he uses smoke, 
holograms, fire, a microphone, all to, to make sure everyone knows that he is powerful, that he's more than a man, he's a wizard. And Dorothy and her friends are cowering, shaking before him. And then Dorothy's little lapdog, Toto, goes over, pulls open the curtain, and there behind the curtain is an old man working the switchboard. I am the great, powerful Oz. And they look over, and he says, pay no mind to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> this, is, this is exactly what Xerxes is doing. He's been exposed for what he is after months of trying to put on this, this charade to, to prove to everyone how great he is. He's just like us. He's a man. He's a man behind a curtain. And God and the author of Esther is inviting us to laugh at how silly this is. It's silly to act like you're more than a man. He dedicated six months of his life and it all goes down the drain in one moment. We find out he's just a man and even a scared little boy. Psalm 2, if you've got a Bible, open to Psalm 2. It um, is a great illustration of this. Psalm chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, talks about kings, rulers, just like Xerxes. It says this, The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. You see that? The kings are trying to make themselves like God. And what is, how does God respond there in verse 4? The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. When you see people, maybe they're politicians, maybe they're athletes or uh, Instagram models, whatever they are, they try to make themselves more than human. They pretend like they're equal with God. You can laugh at them because it is silly. They are just human. We're, we're called in this passage not to take the power and the glory of this world too seriously. You don't have to take it seriously. Yes, we are absolutely called to give honor and respect to those in authority, but not the honor that God is due. That honor is reserved for him alone. There is only one who is never wrong and whose word can never be thwarted. That's God. God is the only one who deserves the level of honor that Xerxes is trying to attain. You also need to know that when you see this, you don't need to get angry. You, just, you don't need to be intimidated by worldly power because your hope is in heaven with Christ. And that brings us to our second point. Uh, we spent the brunt of our time there in the first point, but now how do we respond when our leaders are imperfect, when they use us? How do we respond as Christians? We lament because it's not the way it's supposed to be. This is not laying down what a good king looks like. And our leaders today in our country are not exemplary leaders either. We lament because it's not the way it's supposed to be. In our passage, we have a, a king 
with as much power as any mere man could ever have, maybe has ever had? And how does he use it? To stroke his own ego. You need to realize, it's helpful to to understand that if you lived in this kingdom with King Ahasuerus, and you're just trying to feed your family, you're a farmer, you live in Persia somewhere, maybe by the Nile River, and you're just trying to feed your family, your taxes paid for this party. You're scraping by, trying to put food on the table. Your taxes paid for that gold couch. That would be upsetting. The reality is that this kind of self-centered power is nothing new, and God actually has warned us about this. Uh, He warns us in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Listen to this. Um, The people, just to give you some context, the people in Israel, they want a king. And God says, okay, you want a king? This is what a king will do. This is what a king is going to do if you have a king. Here's God speaking. This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. Here's a sad reality about the world that we live in. It it is sad. Our leaders will use us. Our leaders just like King Ahasuerus will consider their own interests before they ever think of ours. And it's not primarily because the system is broken, but because we humans are sinners and we're self-centered. I'm sad to say that as I look out and look at you guys, I can say with confidence that everyone here has at one time or another been used by one of their leaders by someone who held authority over you, whether it was institutional authority like a boss or a politician, whether it's physical authority, someone stronger than you, and they use their strength not to help you, but to hurt you. Maybe it's someone with mental authority over you, a professor or a teacher. It's sad. It's it's sad that we live in a world where our leaders abuse their power. And what's the appropriate response to this? God calls us to lament. Lament, if you're not familiar with that word, it's just a passionate expression of sorrow to God. It's looking to God and saying, God, why is this happening? This is terrible. Jesus laments as he looks at Jerusalem. He laments for this very reason. Jerusalem, the leaders, are not using their power appropriately. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This is Jesus speaking in Matthew 23. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. 
How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And Mordecai laments later in this book, chapter 4, he gets bad news, another leader abusing their power. Look at, this is what, if you turn to chapter 4, verse 1, Mordecai, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried aloud with a loud and bitter cry. Lamenting, expressing sorrow to God is not something that Americans are good at. We, a lot of us don't even have a category for this. We know angry, we can get angry, but we don't know lament. And let me free you up. God doesn't want you going through life without being sad. One, over one-third, about 40% of God's uh, Psalter, the, the Psalms, that's God's prayer book for Christians, is lament Psalms. 40% of the Psalms are sad. They're cries to God to do something about the injustice. And we also have the book of Lamentations. If you haven't read that, it's literally a whole book devoted to being sad. Job, very similar. God made us. He knows what we need. We need to be sad because we live in the now, but not yet. We live in a time when sadness is often the appropriate response to what happens. So if you were to Ask God, God, what should I spend my time thinking and praying about? Uh, He would say, well, you should spend a significant chunk of your time telling me, bringing whatever makes you sad to me. I want to know about it, just like the psalmist does. Now, you might spend more time being angry than being sad. Um, I think I would fall into that category too. I want to encourage you that a significant portion of your anger needs to be redirected to lament. What does that look like? Well, maybe you watch the news and you see a leader saying something, doing something that's not right. And you can go to God and you can, instead of getting angry, say, God, how long are you going to let this go on? This isn't right. This breaks my heart to see these leaders using their power for their own good. Bring your passionate expressions of grief to God. If you don't know how to lament, use the Psalms. Or look at your kids, your young children. They probably lament better than you do. They know how to cry. They know how to express their grief. If you're going to be a mature Christian... Lament needs to be one of the tools in your tool belt, and you need to go back to it all the time, all the time. This thing happened. I'm starting to get angry. Oh, is there something there that you can bring to God and say, God, why? Psalm 77, has God forgotten to be gracious? Psalm 13, will you forget me forever? These are things people... The psalmist is saying to God. Psalm 6, my soul is in deep anguish. How long, O Lord? How long? 
Those are some, some ways to help you lament. God has given it to us in his word. I encourage you to go there. Now look at our last point. You may find yourself looking for a leader that you can trust. We all do this. We're constantly looking. Is there someone who I can look to to trust, that I can really trust? Someone with power who will use it for me and not against me. The book of Esther is inviting you to compare God's kingdom with King Ahasuerus' kingdom. He's inviting you to compare King Ahasuerus with King Jesus. Let's look. Let's see if there's similarities or differences. Jesus, he's a king. His decree cannot be challenged or changed, just like Ahasuerus. And he's in charge not over half the world, but over every molecule in the universe. Jesus reigns. Philippians 2 describes how Jesus uses his power. It says this, He was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. See, Christ is a different kind of king. He doesn't grab on to power. He, he gives it up so that he can save us sinners. King Ahasuerus invites his wife to shamefully expose her to his drunken friends. King Jesus, did you know King Jesus is preparing a feast for us? A party? But he invites us not to expose us, but to clothe us in robes of righteousness? His party isn't paid for by our taxes, but by his own blood, by his work? He does, he's not like a King Ahasuerus who makes laws based on his, his drunken insecurities. He makes laws for our good. He gives us every law he gives us is for our good. He didn't, King Ahasuerus marries a trophy wife to show her off, to boost his own ego. King Jesus pulled his wife, that's us, the church, out of the gutter, broken, sinful, dirty. He picks us up, cleans us off, clothes us in robes of righteousness. And what about when when we sin? What about when we turn our back on our husband, Jesus? King Ahasuerus, he humiliates her as publicly as he possibly can. King Jesus, he's gentle. He forgives us. He pays for the wrong that we've done. King Ahasuerus, he sends out a decree to publicly shame his wife as publicly as he possibly can. 50 million people. King Jesus covers our shame. He takes it on himself and he sends us a love letter, the word of God. And he wants everyone to know, I'm in love with my bride, the church. He doesn't force us. He gently draws us into his love. And ultimately he lays his life down for us. Brothers and sisters, 
every other king, every other master is a taker. Jesus is a giver. He is a giver. There is no politician, there's no boss, there's no spouse who will always and every single time use their power for your good. But I can promise you that Jesus will. If you're here today and Jesus is not your king, if, if you're king of your own life, you make the shots or someone else calls the shots, then you're under a yoke of slavery. You serve a master who is harsh and hard, even if it's you. There's only one master who will always work for your good, and that is Christ. He invites you to trust him and to rule over, to let him rule your life. Christians, if, if you have if you're keeping Jesus out of rooms in your house, we've talked a lot about that metaphor of letting Jesus into your house and, and as he goes through your house, which is sort of your life and your soul, he cleans things up and he says, oh, did you know you had this room over here? It's not so good. If there's a room in your house that you're not letting King Jesus into, let him in. Because he, he will rule there gentler, with grace, with compassion more than you have ruled there. If you're, if you're trying to be the king. The Bible says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I want to close with this illustration. Um, uh, one pastor tells a story about something that happened in his hometown. There were two brothers that went out to play one morning by the riverbank. A younger brother, smaller and weaker, and an older brother, bigger and stronger. And they ran, they were running and playing by the riverbank on a mound, mound of sand and mud. And at some point, they fell in and they never got out. And, and that night, their parents realized, where, where, where are our kids? They didn't come home for dinner. So they sent out a search crew when they didn't return for dinner. And they eventually found the younger brother. He was unconscious. The, the sand and the mud was up to his neck. When they cleared the sand away from his waist, he, he woke up. He was unconscious. And he woke up. And they asked him, where is your big brother? Where is he? And he said, I'm standing on his shoulders. Jesus is like this. He uses his power every time for our good. He's the only one. If Jesus is your king, then all his power, which is all the power in the universe, is unleashed on your behalf to save you and to sanctify you. I want to close with this. If you look in your bulletins, uh, you'll see we're about to sing a song, the last song, Oh, Worship the King. I want to help you worship this King, this King Jesus. He is so worthy of our worship. Look at the chorus. 
It says this, you alone are the matchless king. To you alone be all majesty. He's calling us to look at Christ. He is the only king, the only politician, the only boss who will always use his power for your good. So brothers and sisters, rejoice that we get to worship this king. Put your hope in him. Do not put your hope in the rulers of this world. Put your hope in our King Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that you are our King. Lord, if there's pieces of our life that we are not giving to you, help us, Lord. Help us to, to let go and to give you control. You are a good king, God. You are not like Ahasuerus. You're a good king, Lord. Would you help us to see that? I pray that we would worship you now as a good king that you are. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.